Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry at Spurgeon College, the undergrad institution of Midwestern Seminary. And as always, I'm here with my colleague, my friend, a pastor at Emmaus Church, Ronnie Kirks, who's also assistant director of marketing and managing editor of For the Church. So all those articles that you've sent that have not been published, it's this <laughs> man's fault. That's true, actually. Yeah. Yeah, no one else to blame at this point. He thinks you're terrible. That's why That's why they haven't been published. Sometimes people email me because they think I'm still the managing editor. That's right. And yeah. they say, I sent this thing four months ago. And I say, well, Ronnie just doesn't think you're good. That's what happened. He told me straight up. No, that never happens, by the way. So that's right. Yeah. Someone right now is very, very nervous. Yeah, they're like, nervous. oh, no. <laughs> that's not what happens. Uh, it's largely uh, probably that I have about 400 unread articles in my inbox, and I'm slowly working through all of them because I'm do, doing it alone. I do not miss the days. Yes. I do yeah, not miss the days. That's right. But I'm glad that you're doing it because the the site is certainly next level these days. Hey, brother, um, I, 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 I'm sure, um, you know, by now your baby's sleeping through the night. That's right. <laughs> For any listener who doesn't know, that's a little bit of an inside joke from an earlier episode. Uh, and yeah, uh, yeah so I, I'm at. So we recorded the previous episode literally 30 minutes ago. <laughs> they will come out over a span of about a month and a half yeah. or two months, maybe. And in that episode that we recorded literally 30 minutes ago, I, I said, "Does your baby sleep through the night?" And you said, "No." So I'm asking you again 30 minutes later. Yeah. Well, for the benefit of two months from now. That's right. Yeah, is your baby sleeping through the I night? I have high hopes that in these 30 minutes, she learned how to sleep through the night. That's awesome. And that will manifest itself within two months. Yeah. 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 You know what I also um, um, also miss? What's that? And we didn't even talk about something that we missed. Why did I say we also miss? <laughs> we didn't talk about anything that we missed. You know missed. what I'm also missing? You know what I'm also missing? <laughs> that's the worst transition ever. I almost uh, want to take it out. I've had some bad ones. I've had some bad ones. That I, That's the worst. I vote we keep it. Because it corresponds to a thing that did not occur. <laughs> Neither one of us said anything about missing anything. And then you I know, said, I miss my daughter now, Jerry. You know what I also like there eating? We you go. know what I also like having for breakfast? Oh, See, so close. This, this has nothing to do. Um, I'll tell you what I miss. The the beefs, Jared's beefs. We yes, haven't done that. Yeah. Hey, I was telling someone over the weekend about Jared's beefs, and I was listing all of them. And they, I think someone said, this guy's mad at a lot. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so you know what? This past weekend, one of them in the past was fruit and salad. That's right. Yep. Yeah, not fruit salad, but fruit and salad. Yeah. This past weekend, I was at a speaking engagement, and I made the mistake early on. Like they all, you know, they ask you ahead of time things like, "Do you have any dietary restrictions or things that you're?" And I said, "I'm trying to, you know, eat healthy. I, you know, I've been doing that for a while, so I'm avoiding, you know, starches and sugars and that kind of thing." They're like, "All right." So like, I had salad for like every single meal. They got me a salad, and I, I'm just like, I was sick of salad. And the culminating, well, and it's very sweet. I mean, they were just trying to serve me. So it has nothing to do with them. So please don't, you know, uh, because this is my fault for telling yeah, yeah, them, yeah. To, yeah. you know, for, for ordering salads and, and having salads. They got me a salad, a special salad. They had Chick-fil-A and the salad had fruit in it. Oh, And boy. I ate it. And I thought, you know, you know what I was most afraid of? What's that? Liking it. <laughs> I thought I was going to get to the end and be like, yeah, strawberries and blueberries do belong. It mixes with, well. With a vinaigrette. But that you know, wasn't the case. It was not the case. I can tell by the look in your eyes. They did not go together. Yeah. Wow. So that, but the so other that beef, beef stands. That beef is good. Yeah, that, that's still a good beef. <laughs> the other beef comes from the same weekend, um, and 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 not unique, but just another reminder of, of something that, um, again, another food related thing. All my beefs relate to food, which You're, makes sense because it's beef. Yeah. You know, oh, all wow. my all, all my beef. Goodness. See, I'm a dad now, so I can appreciate that. That's awesome. Yeah. It's the 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 
the wait service person, the I don't what do we call them these days? We can't call them waitresses or waiters. They don't like that for some reason. I I think you still can maybe. Okay. But so they they like servers, which yeah. that is worse to me. Huh? I'd rather be somebody waiting Food than service. serving. <laughs> so they're like a wait person or a server person. But anyway, the one who doesn't write down your order. Oh, I saw you post about that. I had yeah. to tweet about yeah. it. It was yeah. burning up my yeah. my heart that. Yeah. Look, it's not impressive. It's yeah. What are they doing? <laughs> Why would you do this? Because I mean, maybe you're great, but I don't know that. Here's yeah. the other thing too. Like, in your mind, um, I'm gonna knock this out of the park. I've been doing this for years. My memories is great. Yeah. And, and I, I'm remembering. But all it does for the people who are dining is give them low grade anxiety That's for right. the ten yeah. minutes, fifteen yeah. minutes that they wait. You for never to come out. ever read on a Yelp review. Food was great. The soda was great. The atmosphere was great. And what was the best? The guy didn't write <laughs> my order down. Our order. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm a little impressed when it when you get it right. But so often it's, it's not right. It's not right. And I'm going to tell you, there, there are more times where it's wrong. And I say to my wife, this is why they should write it down. Yeah, I yeah. say that under my breath. like this. They I can hear that. Yeah. So I'm not impressed when you don't write it down. I think every weight person needs to know this. <laughs> None of us are going, it's amazing that he's not writing this down. <laughs> All we're thinking is my order is going to be wrong. Yeah, my order is going to be wrong. Yeah, um, and then even when it pans out that it, that it's not, we're not overly impressed. And listen, I'm a picky person who has to special order everything. That's the thing. So I, I go out with with my wife and daughters, and it's always like the way my daughters order things is like they order one thing and then they change it so it becomes another thing. Yeah, that's right. That's on the menu, right? <laughs> like I have the number four substitute the beef for the chicken and the greens for and it becomes the number eight and they, yeah, why don't right. just order the eight yeah right? yeah it's one of those things so yeah th- that's my latest beef just write it down hey. i've heard from so i put it on twitter and servers were like serve wait people whatever they're called now wait oriented person like this is a beef within a beef ser- service <laughs> related persons were replying and saying we were made to do that wow that the management you know the management thinks it looks bad if you're out with a pen and paper that looks I don't know. What does it look like? That's Messy, silly. disorganized? Yeah. No, it looks like you want to get my order right. Yeah. That's what it looks like. Yeah. And that's, that, I like that. Listen, you know, I'm a member of the Get Along Gang, so I don't really have many beefs, okay. but my wife is, I don't even think she listens to our podcast, but if she yeah. listens to this episode, she is going to resonate so much okay. with you. So much that Tristan she would rather side. go to a restaurant where you can watch them make it and yeah. like, like like a like a Chipotle or or even like a Witch Witch. I don't know if you've been to that. No. Like a sub place. Oh, I've been one of where those, you yes. write it down. <laughs> so, so, I like that. Yeah, yes. Like, I'll even write it down for you. Yeah. yeah. So I even some of them have the kiosk now. That's right. Yeah. Where the little uh, where you like Taco Bell or McDonald's or whatever has like you go to the computer screen. Mm-hmm. There can be no one in line. I'm at that computer screen <laughs> because first of all, I don't want to talk to anybody. Of course, that's yeah. just me. But the other thing is, I know it's gonna be right. Yeah. Because I'm selecting these things. Man. Now, of course, they could prepare it wrong. I guess, but. That would be another beef entirely. Um, yeah. Say, so, hey, this is a mailbag episode. Hey, there you go. Hey, there's my there's my transition. <laughs> that one. You know what? Also, I missed half hearted. Something else I missed. <laughs> mailbag. It's time for there another we mailbag. Week, man. Every time we do this, I put the call out for some questions. Um, in each successive time, we get better and more questions, yeah. and it actually yeah. gets harder to narrow them mm-hmm. down. So I need to be um, sort of you know keeping on 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 top of the ones that we don't cover. Um, so that we can kind of come back to them. But here are a few questions um, that I've distilled from the many good questions that we receive uh, online for our new mailbag installment. Uh, The first is this. This comes from Chris S. on Twitter, who asks about transitioning a church that has a solo pastor model to plurality of eldership. Basically, can we spitball 
um, in just a few minutes, kind of how we might go about that particular transition. How do you even begin mm-hmm. that transition? Mm-hmm. Ronnie, you ever done that? Uh, we've never transitioned. We planted Emmaus with a plurality. Right. So you might be better to speak on this in okay. your, given the liberty situation. But I will also say um, this is where expository preaching can actually really help you. Uh, pick a book where that is a, a highlight at some point so you can at least get it into the system of the regular teaching of the church. And so, um, yeah, I think that could be really helpful. Yeah, at my last church, this is something that we did approach. And actually, I know this Chris S. He was one of my elders. So I don't know why he's asking the question. <laughs> <laughs> he eventually became that. He wasn't among the first um, elders installed. And in fact, he wasn't there when we went through this process. So yeah. maybe that's why he's asking. Okay, but eventually, okay. he became an elder at, yeah. at, at our church. So maybe he just wanted to know, like, how'd that happen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, if you're listening. Uh, yeah, so this is the, the, the process that we work through. Um, you you want to begin with the leadership that you have, whatever, um, and it could be as informal as just influential people in the church. But in a lot of churches, where the pastor wants to um, establish a plurality of eldership. They have some kind of board, and in a lot of SBC churches, it's typically the board of deacons. Uh, so you have a committee already or, or, or some group that is functioning as almost de facto elders, and that's kind of what I had at my last church as well. So I had a board of deacons, and they were doing a lot of deacony things, but they were also doing some eldery things. And I knew if I want to um, get the congregational approval, we were a congregational church, I want to get the congregation's approval, the membership's approval on establishing an expansion of the pastorate, um, I need to have these leaders on board um, so that it looks like a unified presentation mm-hmm. and, and, and not simply my idea. And I'm trying to convince multiple spheres at once. So I took a year, actually. Um, it may not take you, at, you know, this long. It may take you longer, depending on uh, your church culturally, some of their own kind of preconceptions or misconceptions about what eldership is. And some churches, uh, just the word elder throws people off. Mm-hmm. They equate it with some kind of Presbyterianism or something like that. Um, and so you need to do a lot of kind of handholding and definition clarifying um, so that they see an elder as a pastor and and vice versa. And that you're just simply multiplying that role. So I began with the leaders I had and and, and, and took a full year just working through the issue with them. Um, we read books like um, Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons by Thabiti Anyabwile. Um, I don't know if Jeremy Rennie's book on church elders was out yet, but we were very helped by the Nine Marks material mm-hmm. um, and some other material as well, but just getting the leaders on board. So then I had, after a year, the the leaders of my church were were in agreement. Yes, this is something that we need to do. It is the biblical model. Um, you know, you, you, you're reasoning with them primarily from the scriptures. Show them in the Bible what church governance looks like or what the leadership of a church should look like and then help them see, not accusatorily, but just help them see that our church isn't there yet. Mm-hmm. And so it's not necessarily that we're in sin per, uh, per se, but if we see that that's the model and we're not moving towards there, then very well we could be. We could mm-hmm. be in disobedience. So we want to move towards that. So I took one year to get the leaders on board. Then I took another year, as you said, to basically begin seeding the idea with the congregation. Mm. Um, and part of that was um, uh, a very intentional series. I did a topical series on ecclesiology. We called it Church Matters, and it included all, all sorts of things. So I preached on the on the ordinances, Lord's Supper, and uh, um, and baptism. Uh, I preached about community generally, but then I also did a, a message on church leadership, and made the case just very formally and directly to say this is what the biblical model is. We don't currently have this, and my plan is actually the plan of 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 your leadership is that by the end of this year, we want to mm. change our bylaws, amend our bylaws, 
um, to allow plurality of eldership. But then in other sermons and other conversations, just along the way, I'm just kind of seeding the idea. Mm -hmm. I may be preaching passages that refer to elders or something, even though that's not the main point of the of the text, but just kind of getting it out there visibly. And then the closer we get to the to our, you know, in our press, you know, our process was an annual meeting. Um, well in advance of that, I um, wrote a couple of white papers. One of them was basically the biblical case for eldership, plurality of eldership, disseminated that so anyone could ask questions, but they could kind of read up on on the issue. I wrote a supplemental paper on why male-only eldership, so kind of the complementarian case uh, for male-only um, eldership um, for our church, disseminated that as well, and basically they could see what the bylaws were going to say. So that was all of that is in a second year. At mm-hmm. the end of that second year, our church overwhelmingly voted to approve yeah. um, the expansion of of the pastorate to multiple elders in the bylaws. Then I took a third year to assess candidates, mm. um, you know, find the right men to fit uh, um, in those roles, determine who you know who might be the first slate, and then those candidates were put up for approval by the congregation, um, you know, by the membership uh, at the end of year three at the next annual meeting. So it was a I mean, depending on how you look at it, a long process. Yeah. Um, others, it may go more quickly than that, mm-hmm. you know, for some. But that's how I would do it. I would go slow enough to make sure people are, are being you know, brought on board. So you're trying to diffuse as, as many conflict issues as you can. You yeah. can't always preclude that. There's no way to avoid that entirely. But, you know, be patient and slow enough that you're bringing people on board alongside you rather than them feeling like you're push, right. you know, pushing something. All right. Um, let's move on to our second question here. This is Josh W., also on Twitter. And Josh wants to know, how do we approach the absence of folks from corporate worship who have legitimate concerns about COVID exposure, regardless of the safeguards? So if I'm reinterpreting Josh's question, is basically we're doing things to help prevent the spread of COVID in our church. Josh wasn't specific on what those things are, but let's just imagine it involves masks and social distancing, mm-hmm. uh, cleaning between services and all those sorts of things. Uh, maybe you know even a shorter service, or maybe you're outdoor. Whatever it is, they're mm-hmm. they're taking safeguards. You know that's built into the question. But there are still people who have um, concerns about exposure, and so they're not attending corporate worship. I'm sure you have some folks in your church that are uh, you know, fall into that category. Yep. Um, we have you know, folks at our church that do as well. How do you approach that? Yeah, I would say issue? one of the things that we have reminded ourselves as elders at Emmaus is. We said from the beginning, as this whole thing was kind of unfolding in mid-March, we said from the beginning that we want to pastor the spectrum of opinions that are going to inevitably arise. We want to, we want to pastor everybody well. And what that, what that means is there are going to be some folks such that we have to remind them that the Christian should not live in fear. And we have got to get that piece of reality into their mind and do it consistently. And then there are going to be some people where we're going to need the opposite measure and we're going to need to remind them of just general Christian wisdom and social norms uh, because they want to, you know, buck the system and, you know, down with masks and up with gathering and these kinds of things. And we, we have both extremes and a lot of people in between. Right. And I, I think that's probably the case for just about any pastor or anyone listening and we have just kind of had to remind ourselves that we wanted, we resolved to do that early, you know. So we wanted to be wise with how we were going to operate during the COVID season in terms of, you know, social distancing and masks and everything you mentioned. And at the same time, we were not going to um, allow folks to just use this to fall off the edge. 
And what we learned was there were a lot of folks, a handful of them, who already had one foot out the door. Yeah. And COVID provided a perfect opportunity for them to make a full exit. And we wanted to weed out who was doing that and who is actually legitimately concerned. Yeah, yeah. Josh and has legitimate concerns. That's right. That's and important, that, I think. That is very important. And and so I, I would I would just say for um for Josh here, th- this might not be a silver bullet, brother, but you're gonna have to pastor on an individual basis in this situation of um it's probably smart to have a policy. And then it's probably smart to be um gracious with that policy with individual members. And and you will know as a pastor, you will know your people uh, if this is something where they're borderline sin or they're being rational. They're still leaning into the life of the church. They're still faithful members outside of this particular area. And and you can you can pastor them through it. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things to keep in mind also is, is how much discernment, as you mentioned, is is so important That's here. That's exactly right. And I, I hate, you know, I hate the phrase we all do because we've just heard it a million times. But these unprecedented times, we're still figuring <laughs> this out. That's right. Um, you know, the longer we go, the more we're figuring it out. But I'm 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 reading the question legitimate concerns, and I'm mm-hmm. thinking of people who have um, compromised immunity. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of people who have underlying health conditions that give them a legitimate concern. Um, do I think that that concern will be legitimate for the duration of their life? Um, I hope not. I don't think so. Um, at this season, again, discernment is needed. At this stage in in the game, there are people who I think have legitimate concerns, Without and and, and we yeah. should look at them. Um, at, you know, we should look at the situation as kind of a providential hindrance. The mm-hmm. same reason why you may have some shut-ins. At, you know, elderly people who, who who simply cannot leave their house. You know, they're homebound for you know a disability reason, or they're in a nursing home, or something like that. They're still members of your church that you care for, and and you want to provide as much uh, pastoral outreach to them as you can in a similar way. For those who may seem otherwise yeah. you know, high-functioning and they'd be in your church if this wasn't a thing, um, I just think you need to have some level of discernment to know which ones are making a big deal out of nothing and, and, and which ones have, again, a legitimate concern about exposure to the virus. I don't think this will always be the case, you know, whether it's a vaccine or just other things that we're able to um, see as, as, as the situation develops. Um, but just be very sensitive and, yeah. and patient with people right now. That's right. Right. Maybe it's a, we have a different answer a year from now. Mm-hmm. But for right now, I think, you know, being patient with folks is, is the name of the game because we just haven't been through this before. That's right. And uh, we don't want to make anybody um, sick, even if you don't think they're at as high risk as they think they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just give like one little illustration of this. The other day, somebody put on Twitter uh, something about, um, you know, making fun of people who wear masks in their cars. Like, you know, what dummies are wearing masks in their cars? I've never said that. I'm not, I don't, I think it's weird. I've seen it, but it doesn't overly, it's not one of my beefs, I guess I should say. <laughs> um, I just think people do, forgot, to take, you know, forgot to take their mask off. Yeah, yeah. Or I've done it if I'm like driving across the parking lot to someplace. Uh-huh. I'm in one place, you got to wear the mask, go to the other you know, place across the way. It's too far to, you know, to walk, but you know, um, it, it's a short drive. I just leave the mask on. Yeah. So I just, I make, you know, concessions like that. But somebody else replied and said, um, I have my mask on in the car, and it was some long involved process related to they're a high risk person, and there's something related to their process, and I don't know all the details of it, but they wear the mask in the car for some reason. It has something to do with touching their face hmm. after being in places. The mask prevents them from inadvertently putting their hands on their mouth or something like that. And it just made me so not everyone who's wearing a mask in their car, of course, is in the situation, but it just made me think, you know. Just there's, lots, grace. there's lots of reasons people do all yes, kinds of things. We don't right. have to be judging everybody yeah, every time exactly something right, looks man. weird or different or 
not the way we would do it. Uh, exactly right. Have some grace for people. Uh, okay, next question comes from Ed R. on Facebook. And Ed's a good friend of ours, mm-hmm. um, uh, a student, um, I guess still currently a student. But he's on mission um, right now, Ed R. But he wants to know, can affinity, affinity-based churches be helpful? Can affinity-based churches be helpful? And he lists a couple of examples like cowboy churches or biker churches. And this is the question, Ronnie, we're going to make some people really angry. <laughs> no, I don't know if we will or not. Because we probably have a lot of cowboys and oh, We got a lot of cowboy biker churches. No, but it is um, kind of a deal within certainly the Southern Baptist tradition as well, or the Southern Baptist uh, church planning movement. That's right. Um, and just kind of the you know missional approach, and, and especially in rural contexts and, and other contexts like that. This is, uh, I don't know if it's increasing. I don't, I don't know the data on that, but um, it's, it's certainly not um, a small number yeah, of, yeah. Of, of things comparatively. So it's, it's kind of a, a missional strategy that you would plant a church or build a church around this particular identity to reach a particular subculture. Yeah. So that's what Ed means by affinity-based, um, is a subcultural targeted mm-hmm. church. And the church itself, the identity is built around it. So the name will be something like such-and-such mm-hmm. such cowboy church. That's right. Right. Um, so we've probably seen those things. Any any thoughts on that? Yeah, I uh, I think I know why Ed is asking this question. And and I mean, let's be honest within the, within the affinity groups, I and mean, there's just so many. Yeah. Like you could have so many variants that might even change how we approach the answer to this question. Now, given Ed listed a few of them with uh, you know cowboy church, biker church, well, that makes it a little bit easier. Um, I think there are some affinity groups where you will not be in sin or even in disobedience at all um, to, to kind of have your people gather around this idea. I think, however, you are, are leaving a lot on the table in terms of robust ecclesiology. And, and that's just unfortunate. When we miss the mark on our ecclesiology, the entire church suffers. And so we can see from the scriptures, God's design is... Uh, for the church to be a covenanted people. And what we have in common is our massive need of Jesus, uh, which is way more important than a particular affinity. And um, I mean, we we say this all the time at at my particular church. I'm going to answer the question, am I my brother's keeper in terms of church membership with an emphatic yes. And there are some people that I'm answering that question, am I your keeper with a yes who I probably would not get along with otherwise. Mm. And, and that's amazing. That is okay, and it's, in, in fact, glorious because what I know is that that brother or sister is, a, is a, a radical receiver in need of grace just like I am, and what we have in common is our union with Christ and Jesus, and, and we can get over our differences to make sure that one another crosses the banks of the promised land. Yeah. And look, if you're, just, if you're affiliating around a cultural interest, yeah. that's just too weak. It's just too weak of a thing to gather around. And so I, I would say, uh, Ed R., this is unwise. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would you know, dare to say that it's even contrary to the biblical portrait of mission. Yeah, that's right. Um, or, or just of the local church, which, you know, transcends such things and encompasses every tongue, tribe, race, and nation. Mm-hmm. So I want to distinguish, you know, I want to allow sensitively a distinction between an incidental predominance or dominance of Mm -hmm. one particular subculture in your church because of where you're located or something like that. So if you plant a church, you know, Eighth Baptist Church or whatever it is, um, and it's in a a high concentration cowboy area, therefore you end up with a lot of cowboys in your church. Great. Um, You know, fantastic. Yep. You know, you're reaching your community. I think that's wonderful. You're in an area where there's a whole lot of bikers and you are 
not necessarily incidentally, but because of your, you know, the demographic, you're reaching a mm-hmm. lot of bikers. Fantastic. You're reaching your community. Mm-hmm. But that's different than saying this is who we're about. That's right. This is who we're for. Yep. Um, it would be a similar thing if, you know, you or I, um, at, you know, at our churches decided we're actually going to be seminary, Emmaus Seminary Church. <laughs> that's different than the fact that we have a lot of seminary students who go to each of our churches yeah. to say this is an incidental, not necessarily incidental because we are reaching those people, but our identity is not going to be built around one particular subculture or that's subgroup. Right. Um, and, and, and just think of who you may be excluding yes. in those situations. Um, you know, maybe you're in, a, in, in such a high, you know, concentrated cowboy area that you don't think you're excluding anybody, um, but you're, you know, kind of stunting the, the body of Christ to focus on one particular part or one particular subgroup or subculture. So I just, unwise is probably right. Mm-hmm. I think in many cases, actually uh, contrary to yeah. uh, what the scripture lays out for, you know, for what even, you know, mission um, should be. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, probably a lot more we could say on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I look forward to all of your angry emails related to that. <laughs> Send them to uh, Jay Wilson please. at mbts.edu, please. Thank you. Uh, that's my real email, email address. Thanks, you for, thanks very much, Ronnie. Appreciate that. <laughs> uh, okay, limits. Uh, here's a question that's not a hot topic at all. <laughs> Are there limits to pastoral counseling? Yeah, when not to, a hot topic at all. When to refer um, and I'm not going to de- identify one particular person because this actually came from multiple people on Facebook who yeah. asked basically some variation of the same question, which is why I thought we should address it because it came from multiple people. Um, thought, I mean, yeah, gosh, four-minute thoughts <laughs> on pastoral counseling. But in pati- specifically, when do you know and, and, and what do you do when, when you know um, this person needs not just me, but mm-hmm. needs to kind of be referred to someone else? Yeah, yeah I think this is a, this is a really important question. And I think two steps are needed to answer this question. The first is, Pastor, you should be self-aware and kind of um, know where your depth is here because it's okay that there are some pastors who are just more gifted here than other pastors, right? You should be able to counsel your people somewhat, somewhat, in some way. Um, But some brothers, they live for this. Like they want to sign up for the 20-session counseling thing where they're going to walk through some of the hardest parts of someone's life, and they feel very prepared. And in fact, they are prepared to speak to some of those things. And some brothers, that's just not the case. And, and that's okay. And so I would say, first, know yourself. And then second, I really think it's wise to develop some relationships with counselors that you know and trust. And, <clears throat> and look, the reason this question is controversial is obviously there's a big argument under underlining this with nuthetic counseling and all the things that go along with that. But listen, even if you are on the far end of the nuthetic side or the far end of the integrationist side or somewhere in between, you can still know counselors in your area who fall in that particular uh, line of reasoning. Right. And so what that allows you to do is know your depth and then know uh, where you can send someone that, that you think is a trustworthy, reputable source. We have, we have found that at Emmaus, uh, there will be a familial thing or a major tragedy trauma where we really are out of our depth. I can guide you as much as you want me to speak in the situation, but ultimately I know that uh, this is going to be bigger than a couple of pastoral counseling sessions. And so I have a handful of counselors that I really love and trust and recommend, and I think they administer reality well and apply wisdom well, and I trust sending my congregants to them. Yeah, there's a couple of issues that for me um, were always kind of the the bigger consideration of 
Um, I need someone to not replace my insight into this you know, person's life, but to supplement it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that related to people who might have training or insight in areas that, that I simply do not. Yeah. And I think um, to kind of, you know, you know, piggyback on what you said in the beginning is not, you know, for every pastor to not see themselves as some kind of guru who yeah, has, that's exactly right. you know, the infinite answers to every situation or even the, even the right, you know, relational makeup to help somebody best, some people that just connect better with others. So you might have all the right answers, but someone else is just better suited to mm-hmm. providing those same answers mm-hmm. in a different way. But the two big issues for me were always issues of, of trauma related to abuse um, or, or issues of addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and regardless of your philosophy on addiction, whether people are really, you know, can be addicted or, or not, um, chemical dependency or those sorts of things, um, I just saw that, that I, I don't feel equipped to provide um, whole, you know, adequate counsel. So I, I can continue to provide pastoral counsel because what pastoral counseling is essentially is, is, is a concentrated form of discipleship. You're just mm-hmm. helping people see Jesus, find Jesus, apply the word of God to their life help them confess and repent of, of sin, um, help them you know, combat you know, negative thoughts and patterns of behavior with the promises of God and the truths of Scripture. Um, but there's some who, who have training in these particular areas, history of them, they've studied these things in, in depth, that I just know that they're going to be a better help as a supplement. Um, we were fortunate at my last church to have the affiliate office of CCEF um, in Vermont. So the, the, the New England affiliate office Mm. Was was in White River Junction, Vermont, so about forty five minutes from us. So I I felt great about referring some folks there to professional licensed biblical counselors, and they were able to, um, you know, with the counselees, uh, um, you know, permission, I would be in contact with them. So it's not like I'm just farming them out and getting rid of them outside of, course, of the yeah. church, you know, um, oversight. But I'm, of course, you know, um, you know, communicating with their counselor. We're making sure we're on the same page that we're approaching things from a similar angle. But that person, those counselors, just have more expertise, more training, um, and a greater ability to you know help people who really have really intensive needs mm-hmm. that I just feel like are kind of outside of my own yeah. um, expertise. But there may be other situations where you're referring people to others inside your church. Uh, my wife and I have counseled multiple couples who have gone through miscarriage, and that's on the recommendation of the elders of our church. Someone says, "Hey, reach out to Jared and Becky, see if they you know could meet with you guys." Um, and that's not because our elders don't know the first thing about how to you know, you know speak to someone who's been through a miscarriage, but they know we've been through that situation. Yeah. They trust us, you know, uh, to be able to relate to people based on uh, you know kind of a common history, that sort of thing. There may be people in your church who would be great yeah, you know, that, to meet with those really folks. Um, but even if it's somebody outside, an outside counselor, um, the other situation where I think it could be helpful is if you realize this person is coming to me as a means of. Uh, almost codependence, right? So you talk about the 20-week or, or mm-hmm. sometimes a pastor can find themselves in a situation where this is just ongoing, there's no clear resolution, and it's clear that this person, you quote-unquote, needs to meet with me or they can't get through the week. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much pastoral counseling and discipleship you're providing, but some kind of crutch, some kind of, um, you know, you create despair for them if you're not available. You become a functional messiah to them. Mm-hmm. And in some of those cases, I would refer outside, especially for people of means, because now there's a financial incentive. Um, I've, I, you know, you find out: do they really need this? Do they yep. really want to get help? And if they really want to get help, they will use their own resources rather than coming to the free, you know, pastoral counseling. Um, now, if, you know, people who are in in deep need, as I spoke of earlier, right, trauma and and, and those sorts of things. When when we re- 
refer out if if they had financial needs that they were not able to meet. The church would you know would um, provide that, and we had a policy in place where I could, at my own discretion, um, help others with church funds uh, uh, afford counseling. But just as kind of a little pro tip for some, you find out when someone has some skin in the game, uh, if they're really seeking help, or yep. if you're just kind of the crutch for them, you know, um, um, you know, with their own kind of uh, you know codependency. Um, okay, one more question, which I think we can approach uh, somewhat quickly: discussing the hiring of pastors from outside the church versus inside the church. Drake O on Facebook is asking this question: When is it good, bad, etc., to um, talk about hiring a pastor? Um, you know, puts a search team together or whatever it is to bring someone in from the outside to fill a role versus hiring from the inside. Mm-hmm. General thoughts on that? Yeah, that, that's good. It's um, it, it borders on the same advice I gave to the COVID question, which is um, sometimes pastors just need wisdom and reading the room. Like, like, <laughs> okay. Uh, I hope that you can do that. Like, you know your people well enough that you can read the room, as it were. And what I mean by that is, what's the temperature of your church? Do you have someone yeah. who is qualified and desires the office? Do you think you might have someone who is possibly qualified and possibly deserves or uh, desires the office. Those are obviously going to inform what you do. Yeah. Is there a need for a pastor right now? If there is, and the answer to the first two questions is no, well, then you might want to start looking elsewhere. Um, And so I just think it's going to take some some knowing the sheep, knowing the life of your church, and being able to read the room. Yeah, I think in in an ideal world, right, I mean, this is a very complicated question and and involves just a lot of of working pieces in terms Mm -hmm. of what's best and what's um, I, in an ideal world, all of our hires, so to speak, are coming from within. Mm-hmm. I, I think all of us would desire that, that our church is, is developing leaders in such a way and, and people are maturing in such a way and they know our church and love our church so much that we have a resource, you know, people resource within our own church that we can put into all kinds of positions, yeah. not just pastoral positions, but, you know, um, administrative positions and those things as well. Those are the you know the best shots at longevity because they were there before they're getting paid to be there. Mm-hmm. They love the church. They you know they're on mission with you already. You see them up front. You see their character. That's right. There's someone discipling them and and and, and having oversight. That's something you know something that's missing when you're interviewing from the outside. You can get references. You can get a glimpse of people's personality, reputation, but you don't really see them in action. See mm-hmm. how they res- you know respond to challenges or conflict um, when they're outside. So in an in an ideal world. Everybody's hired from the inside, but we don't live in an ideal world. And I can think of a couple of um, situations why hiring from outside is, um, you know, could be necessary and is increasingly, um, you know, the practice. And one is the church is growing so quickly mm-hmm. that um, it, it's kind of outpacing the, the, you know, internally people's ability to understand or, or cope with the growth of the church. So if your church is going rather quickly, you may have some very administrative-minded people in your church who could serve as a mm-hmm. you know, systems director or something like that, but they've never um, done it at that level yeah. or something that's moving so quickly. Um, and so it just becomes necessary, perhaps, or, or, or you know, desirable to look outside to find someone who has been in a church in that situation or who has pastored a church of your size now. Mm-hmm. No one in your church has that kind of experience quite yet. Um, if you don't have any leadership development in place or haven't for a while, and so you haven't been developing maturity among folks to see, you just don't have any qualified elders or that sort of thing um, because your church is too small or before you got there or you're, you just haven't been there long enough to begin kind of developing that you mm-hmm. know, spiritual formation in, in your church. So for whatever reason, you're not trying to blame anybody, but you just don't have the qualified people there. Of course, you need to look outside. Yeah. 
um, for that. So, you know, it's not wrong. You know, he says, is it good, bad, et cetera. It's, it's not bad. Um, sometimes it's just the, you know, the hand you've been dealt mm-hmm. and it, you know, it's a way that you're, you know, trying to, uh, um, you know, compensate for yeah. that. But again, in an you know, ideal world, um, especially large churches, it, it still boggles my mind that there'd be churches of thousands of people who need to hire from the outside. They've been around for 10 years or more, um, especially longer established big churches that think we need to get the next celebrity yep. guy or someone else. Um, that tells me something about their mm-hmm. you know, leadership pipeline or their leadership development within the church, that they're not giving other people's you know, chances to develop their gifts. Yeah. Because those, you know, it's a good shot at longevity. Somebody who's already there who already loves your people, who knows your people, um, to let them preach, um, I think can be really important. That's good. All right. Well, that's all we've got for today. Thanks for the questions. We'll send out, of course, the next time around, we're going to record another mailbag installment, another invitation for you to do that. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, we ask you that you give us a good review. I haven't checked the reviews in a while. So they may, be, they may be good now. <laughs> for a while, they just, I, only angry people comment. That's yeah, the thing. that's exactly right. Only people with beefs. Voice the beefs. I need to start doing Jared's uh, optimistic, you know, compliments or something. I'm into that. Let's do that. I could provide some of those. Things I like. Yeah. Things I like. Yeah. So, but if you do enjoy the podcast, please give us a good review on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.